You are listening to the Techie Leadership Show with Bogdan and Andrei. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Techie Leadership Show. Today with us we have Gabriele Musella. He is an entrepreneurial product lead with over 15 years experience in innovation, product management, fintech, team leadership, agile strategy, UX data, FCA. Hands-on experience of new digital products and leading big teams of over 20 members. He also has international working experience in Finland, UK, Italy, Hungary, Czech Republic, the USA, a true globe trotter. And since he likes giving value back to others, he has been a mentor at Virgin, Startup Bootcamp, advisor at Harvard, and lead mentor at Google. He has founded three tech companies and has facilitated the organization of conferences at MIT, TEDx, DMI, and University of California, Berkeley. Hello, Gabriele, and welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Hi, hi. Would you like to add anything more about yourself? Uh, maybe that I'm an obsessed tennis player. I play tennis three times a week, uh, so I can't nice. imagine my life without playing. <laughs> That's why you're so fit. It's a very difficult sport to, 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 to play intensely. I can't so, imagine running around. My, my idea of a sport is, uh, is fishing. The fish does all the work. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, tennis is very uh, uh, technical, and, but it's also a kind of it's a meditation act. So you're there and you're meditating with a ball and a racket. Yeah. So, so did you try to go professional with tennis or...? Uh, I mean, I did go semi-professional, so I did a few tournaments, and especially when I was in the U.S., uh, because actually when I was working at MIT, there had like so many courts, so I was training every day and doing a few tournaments. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to go professional, you need to be, uh, you know, an alien. Uh, you know, I, I'm not so good, like, as a professional. I, you just <laughs> need to be the top 1,000 players in the world. You know, I'm asking because recently I've heard like a story, a guy telling like what motivated him to get into into business and said another tennis player that he admired a lot went into business and he and he did some digging around and find out why he decided to go into business and said like his the, the tennis man logic, he said like I was in position 180 something. The guy said 80 people. Yeah, making money. I was with all the equipment, the trainers, and everything. Actually, I was breaking even, sometimes losing money during a, a year. And exactly. said like, and I and said like, I am like 180 something in the world in tennis. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering how much is the 180-something businessman in the world making? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the most expensive stuff is actually signing up to tournaments, all the rackets, all that going around, you know, having a coach. Actually, you have a team of people around you. So I, when you're like a teenager, your family really needs to support you with like 20, 30K per year so you know, in order to make it then to the top 20. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. so it's expensive and it's, it's like a business. It is, it is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and besides the expense, there's also the self-discipline and all the, it's like having a, a, a full-time job with a lot of overtime. Exactly. <laughs> and it's also a very, uh, it's a very, like it brings a lot of shocks to your back and then the shoulders. So a lot of people just end up like breaking some, some bones and then they stop. Yeah. 
Well, I'd never played anything that competitively before, but I still have uh, uh, knee pains. So I, I won't tell the listeners to be dissuaded by the fact that going pro in any sport will give you back pains or knee pains. Those you'll get with age regardless. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay, so without further ado, let us get on with the show. Um, tell me, Gabriele, what is the biggest leadership success story that you have witnessed personally? Um, I think one of our, ourselves in the company in Coinrule, I think, uh, it, was, uh, it was like me with our, the other two co-founders, uh, the three of us. Uh, we, uh, we, had, uh, we were in the middle of fundraise before uh, COVID-19. It was February 2020. Okay. And uh, and uh, it was very very interesting because we had a term sheet on the table with uh, a big VC in London, uh, and it was all sorted. We had like many meetings with with this VC, all good. But then COVID came in, and uh, within two weeks, I remember the first I was was the first two weeks of, of March, the conversation with the with the VC went totally different. They start like really uh, hitting hard on the valuation, lowering the valuation. And at some point, you know, we found that in a few days, we, we basically, all the work we've done in the, the previous months of meeting them and actually, uh, you know, dealing with all the clauses of the shareholder agreement, then everything was just burned. And, and, and they wanted to invest an evaluation that was just slightly higher than the previous one from the year before. So, and, and our money, the bank account, were actually running up. So actually, we had a situation where we didn't have much funds to be able to actually still pay the salary to our team that was at that time was like 10 people. And on the other side, we could like get uh, something like around half a million in at a valuation that was super bad. Or we can just say like, you know what? Let's not accept this very bad deal from this VC. Let's keep going. Let's cut ourselves salary. Let's like, you know, bring the team in an active responsibility of cutting a little bit the salary as well. And you know, let's see if in the next few months we can we can go through this storm and actually make it. But before taking this decision, we had like some like I remember like for three four nights I was not sleeping. I was just reading blogs, reading around, like trying to find something some solutions to the situation. But the leadership actually, uh, the leadership like came from the actual team, not from one single person. But the three co-founder, we actually decided like you know, if we need to make something, it to make sense. We need to actually honor the, all the time and the work, the hard work that these people have been doing for the last year in our team. And we cannot allow someone else just to come in and to be a shark, to cannibalize our work by offering the same valuation. And, you know, usually startups, they actually double or triple the valuation one year to another, right? Uh, and, yes. uh, and that didn't seem right at all. And, and I always, when I started this company, I always told my co-founder, either we make things right, uh, you know, Either we we can compromise a little bit, but we need to do the right thing. In the moment we stop doing we stop doing the right thing, I would rather close the company and do something else and add the value with you know to, to some other proposition or company. And uh, yeah, and then we we went through these three months were very hard. Uh, some people on the team actually uh, a couple of them they relocated somewhere where there was cheaper to leave. Uh, the team actually surprisingly uh, they actually really cut themselves the salary by themselves. Actually, they actually proposed. To, to cut their own part. They really, they really when, I, when I had a call to army for everyone there in that, in that speech, I remember everyone was super happy to step forward. So like, yeah, we are here, don't worry, we are for the company, let's do it. And then what happened after, you know, in, in June, June, uh, we, we end up having another leading investors and then the fundraise 
you know, there were like five more angels joining and, uh, and now it's going very well. I mean, actually we are, we are completing the fundraising right now and we are also going on CDS for the crowdfunding campaign. So, you know, we were, there were like three months, like there was a, like uh, uncertainty. So on top of all the COVID crisis yes. and mental strength, uh, mental stress, we also add, uh, you know, the fundraising, not having fun uh, in the comment. That was very stressful, but you know, the team in itself gave, gave like a lot of, a lot of energy and a lot of optimism to actually the three people that were supposed to, to lead the team. Uh, so it was really a, a giving and receiving type of uh, leadership and direction in, in, in the comment. It really made me think that a flat structure, uh, it's, that works very well for us and probably works very well in also other companies. So it's, it's really interesting because you have like a, it's really stressful having also the idea of running out of funds and also having all this pandemic going on around the world. So putting additional stress mm-hmm. and the team stepping in and actually you in three months, you were able to find uh, new financing, which is awesome. Awesome. My question is to you, what happened then? Did uh, you increase the salaries of the people working yeah, there? Yeah, Give yeah. them like bonuses and yeah. stuff like that? Yes, Did yes, yes. See some yes, appreciation? Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> totally, totally. Actually, the, we gave, uh, out of the team, like only, I think, three people didn't have stock options. So we actually gave stock options. Then the salary, uh, and actually uh, we raised the salary. So we went like to normal salary and also we raised it. And also we gave them a bonus when the first, the 50% of the fundraise went through. But that's something that we always do. Every fundraise, we always give a, a small raise on salary and also um, a bonus. Also because we are very lean in that term. I mean, we, our team is, is so remote. Uh, we have, uh, most of the tech team is in Pilsen and near Czech Republic, uh, near Prague in Czech Republic. It's one hour away from Prague. Where they make the beer. Exactly, it's the city where they make the beer, exactly. All, all the city, a good location, good location. Yeah, it's perfect. Like every time we go and there's a new hire, we bring in there and we go to the to the brewery. So that's uh, <laughs> now it's, it's an amazing city. It's a very small, but it's very cool. And, and our tech team is there because our CTO actually um, was born there. And then after uh, after London, was like, you know what, I want to go back there. And then I'm building a house and stuff. So actually, we have a very nice office in the in a co-working space there. And uh, so it means also that the salary, you know, three of them, three actually four developers in Czech Republic cost as much as one developer in London, a senior developer in London. So we are very lean. So for us, you know, we, you can actually give give uh, give raise on salaries pretty often because, you know, we start from a very low point. And I'll share with you one secret that not a lot of businesses know. So keep that secret to yourself. Mm-hmm. Developers, when they work remote, they tend to work more without knowing because they have no one to com- compare themselves with. So they feel guilty every day. So they work 1.5% or 50% more than they would normally do it without even knowing about it. Well, okay. Okay. That's very surprising. Okay. That's a good start. Thank you for so, sharing. So it's very good for you that you have a remote, remote developers. Yeah. They're, no, they're remote. Yeah. Because, because on the other side of the, of the coin, I mean, you can also say they are less engaged. There's no team around them. They're less motivated. So they work less. That's nah, also another point. Not with developers. <laughs> we, we like to be left alone. Mm-hmm. So we can, we, we can spend all our time in between our years and think about what we have to do. Well, what, we, what we saw in our company is that uh, if a developer already worked, is used to work remotely. Actually, it's like you said, like they work a lot. If they were working in a normal company and they come remote, they have the first three months, they're a little bit confused. 
Uh, yeah. yeah, of course. <laughs> they have to yeah, get yeah. used to the new get used to exactly. it, but afterwards it's smooth sailing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so what inspired you to take this course of action? Because most uh, businesses they wouldn't uh, take this course of action. They would think like uh, maybe the temptation would be there to actually initially take the money, and mm -hmm. then if it the deal falls through and you have the money, it would be like cut jobs, uh, cut the losses. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I know what Jamie. That the that's like a big difference between my uh, co-founder Oleg, a CEO that also uh, takes care of the business development. Um, yeah, he's very like pragmatic. Like let's do and go. You know, let's do it and that's it. I'm also very pragmatic, but I don't want to get screwed over. So actually, every time. Um, Every time, also like in the first fundraise before the pre-seed investment that was 250k, I remember the first investors really came out with a with a with a low valuation and they had to negotiate it for three weeks. So actually, I didn't like to negotiate it. I'm very frontal in the negotiation because I want to get a good deal every time. And then with this this seed fundraise that we refused. So basically, the previous valuation at the end ended up being 1.3 million, and okay. that was last year. We didn't have product, we didn't have users, we didn't have traction. Then after one year, we had a product that was live, 13,000 users, 10K revenue every month, and 5 million uh, traded on the platform. So actually, we had a very good product. And, this, and, and, and the VCs would propose like a, a 2 million valuation. That is basically nothing. Given that our conversation was always at 4.5 million. Uh, so I basically, I negotiated very hard. So I, 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 just, I just didn't feel right. And, 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 and then even if you accept such a low valuation, then how can you, I mean, how are you going to look in front of the, the, the new investors uh, in the future? Yeah. You're just going to look like a fool or like someone that just like doesn't know how to negotiate or how to preserve the value of the company of the product that you develop. So it's also, I always put stuff in perspective on the long term, like say, saying like, okay, if, if, if I do this, how is it going to look in five years, in 10 years to myself first, to my team and to my investors and also to, to anyone that look at that story and it didn't look right. So that's mm -hmm. why I really pushed back. I guess uh, sometimes no deal is better than a bad deal. Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, they are buying a piece of your company. So I need to be comfortable to, to give them a piece of my company. When people always um, kind of celebrate fundraise, I don't know why they do it. You're selling a piece of your company to someone else. And, and, and these people need to come into your house and actually need to do business with these people for five, ten years. If these people are shy... It's like a marriage. Yeah. It's, it's like, like a marriage. So... Yeah. So with that, Gabriele, how important are leadership skills, uh, especially like in this, uh, when raising funds, when working with VCs in this world? Because in my opinion, it's still a side of leadership. How, how crucial have you find to be leadership in that situation? I mean, the, 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 it's, a, it's a very tricky question. I mean, because first of all, the, the etymology of the word leadership, I don't know, it's like very complex because leadership is everything and nothing, right? Uh, someone says leadership is about communication and that's yes that's one big part of it i always over communicate and i repeat stuff three four times i look like a, you know like, like so stupid when i say stuff three four times in three different ways in three different situations so that actually i make sure i don't mind to to be perceived as a bored person that just repeats stuff but i just want to make sure that my, people in my team understood the message and what i'm saying and in Good. two three different ways so I, you know i sacrifice that kind of being cool and being like <laughs> um, kind of like a balanced person, but I prefer that actually people uh, like really absorb the message and actually act towards it because you have a lot of people that need to do stuff so indirectly need to actually kind of nudge them in order to them to do the right thing. 
Um, so the leadership stuff, uh, it's, it's, it's always a, a tricky one. So uh, if the question was like, what's the main quality of the leadership? And I mean, in this situation, it's about stepping back, having a clearer vision of what's going on. And for that, for example, sketching and actually the visual language, like really pen and paper for me helps a lot. Uh, my intelligence is mostly visual uh, and abstract, uh, but not really, sometimes not logical or mathematics. So for me, visualizing what's going on from like stepping back helps me a lot. Uh, then evaluating the, 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 the strategically all the possibility and then communicating them. And then I have like that personality, I think personality aspect that is really going straight into one stuff and be very stubborn about it. And, and in, I mean, I'm like 36, so I've learned in the last few years how to be stubborn about a specific thing that I really believe they're right. And, and, and they're really, uh, when I really rationalize them and I really believe they're right. Uh, and, and most of the time it works because sometimes people cannot see what you've seen. And yeah, so there are like a few bets that I, uh, let's say three times a year at least, I have these three really stubborn points that I really want to okay. push for. And uh, th those one helps me a lot. Ah, yes. Learning how to use stubbornness for the greater exactly. good. Yeah, yeah, but it's, I think it's also good because it's complementary to my co-founder that is very, he's like a people person. Everyone loves him because he's always moderated and he always makes everyone happy, right? So I cut through the, through the, through the, through the butter, but he's actually spreading the butter all over. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's all, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 similar to. I have a friend that uh, did a lot of high tech stuff for um, development, software development, and uh, anytime he 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 uh, onboarded new projects, he always told people, "Listen, you have the sweet spot. All your dreams come true. You have things that well, they're not perfect, but we love this. And then you have things that are non-negotiable." So strive for the things that are non-negotiable. Negotiate for the things that are uh, in the suite, uh, that are good, good enough, not perfect, but good enough. And keep a little optimism. Maybe, just maybe, you will hit the sweet spot. But the way it's similar to what you said, you said, I will not tolerate them to undervalue me. This is non-negotiable. Whatever happens, we will, we will do whatever is necessary. For this, we will fight. Yeah. And moving on, what is the biggest leadership failure you had the unfortunate experience of witnessing? Oh my God, like uh, so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, um, usually there are more than successes. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think, I mean, uh, if leadership also means, um, I mean, in this case, maybe I can, I, can, uh, I can maybe bring one example from one of the company I worked uh, okay. with. Uh, I cannot say names. Uh, no problem. It, it was a, it was an innovation lab of, of a big bank, and uh, I think the, the 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 problem in that case was that we were uh, kind of perceived as as cool people. So it's kind of a typical, you know, you know, our, our typical corporation. They have like the innovation lab. They isolate this group of people so they can work in agile, lean methodology <laughs> with Kanban, Scrum. They can have fun. They can do like all crazy stuff. And they get perceived from a bank, they get perceived like, the, oh, the, the funny guys that are up there doing stuff that no one understands, right? <laughs> and then, and then, and then sometimes, like, when someone working for the corporate bank, the, like, the more boring part, actually, is getting demotivated and depressed, burned out, they send him, like, to the 
the cool place, like the, the play, work, play field. Right? Okay. The innovation lab to do something cool, like a mobile app or something. <laughs> anyway, so in, in the most of the banks, I would say that that's the case. And, and usually what happens, um, you have people coming in with the fresh expertise and skills, and they and actually try to make, to reinvent some of the models, like, you know, how the mortgage, how the risk, the risk profile for mortgages is, is defined. Uh, and you know, try to make um, to make better better things, and actually with the new te- technologies and new methodologies. But then uh, most of those, uh, you know, you do a proof of concept four weeks. It's very fast. It's very cool. You have it there, like you know, you do testing, you do paper prototyping, like small prototypes. And then you have first the first kind of metric that look good. And then usually what happens, you have to go around in all the bank to actually uh, ask if someone in the bank has a budget, like one or two million to put down to actually uh, implement the project and eventually deploy it. And okay. in the, in, 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 one thing I witnessed in terms of leadership is was in one, one of these labs where literally 95% of the projects went into trash. So, uh, and, and that was mostly because uh, the, the, the main, um, the, the, I would say the leadership of the lab, the two, three people in charge were not really actively buying into the project and going around the bank and actually selling it at strategic level, you know, with the with the maybe CEO group in the in in, in the back. So that one was 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 basically all the kind of middle manager and junior manager going around the bank trying to sell uh, to sell the vision of this new uh, new proposition and proposition that were like kind of something like ten years ago. Uh, there was already something like Monzo or something like you know. So these big banks that already this uh, chal- digital challenger within the bank. So this kind of new banking hub that will like really uh, kind of capture the, the, the early or the youngster market, but they didn't deploy it. And that was at least what I saw in one case was because the leadership was not really buying into this project, seeing you know, through what could happen in the next 10 years for millennials or for the Gen, Gen Z or Gen X, the new generation. And, and, and therefore they didn't do that, that work and, and this project they never saw the life. And, and that's how few of the uh, British banks lost a lot of market shares uh, that was then captured by Revolut, Monzo, Sterling Bank, uh, all these like new banks. No, my God. It's unfortunate I cannot, I cannot say names and because I cannot go into <laughs> okay. so I get no, It's not a problem. No, but it happens because as you said, like at the beginning, the department was set inside the bank, like in a bubble. But mm-hmm. the problem was the people that got in that department also bought into the mentality that we're in this bubble and we're separate and they didn't go outside to evangelize and tell them about the cool stuff that was happening in the bubble Mm -hmm. so as a leader okay you can be in a bubble as a leader but when you have something you have to go outside the bubble and tell people come inside the bubble and see what's going on exactly exactly yeah i I would say like they were doing a very good job inside the lab but nothing outside so that was like really the problem this isn't the first time I heard something very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 80s or 90s, um, Kodak, you know, the big company, mm-hmm. uh, photography company, they had uh, their own bubble where they said, here, have some funding, do some R&D. And guess what the guys invented? They invented the digital camera and Kodak was like, yeah, that's not happening. We don't see no value in this. And 20 mm-hmm. years later, well, you know what yeah. the rest is history so yeah. i understand perfectly with the with the stuff with and, and the probably the boys. budget the budget to test a new product like a digital product for kodak was was probably very low you know for them maybe it was like i don't know 0.5 percent of their yearly budget they spent 
you know, in producing new cameras. Maybe so it could have been very easy for them to test a new product. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> I hear a lot of, um, a lot of material online and not only online, how to create a vision for the company, how to, to, to make your people, your teammates buy into the vision. That works both both ways. If if the leadership doesn't believe in the vision and only the teammates believe in it, you get uh, the example that you just gave us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with the vision, it's very fine because everyone talks about vision, but vision actually requires one one simple thing, actually to see. Yes. And if you don't have like, uh, you can, if you cannot see, actually there's no point in making a vision. So people should learn first how to see what's coming up in the future, actually how to visualize the future and after they can build a vision. And that's a skill. That's a skill you have to practice. Yes, but when I see a really, I'm very pragmatic. So when I see actually visualize, I really think like people should actually, you know, draw, do drawings, actually use more like the design thinking tools and techniques to actually build the so future. How how often do you find yourself like drawing out your visions oh, or your always. ideas? Or... Every day, every day. I like uh, like tons of uh, notebooks and always two three pens and. Yeah, but, but I mean, for me, it's pretty easy because I come from that world. I come from a design UX background. That's what I started. That's what I've been doing before jumping into the startup world. Uh, I was always kind of head of UX, user experience lead in several companies. So for me, it's kind of natural to, do, to use the visual language. But uh, imagine if you can put like a pen and paper in the hands of uh, Elon Musk or like any other like leader that come more from either a technical or a business background. I think they could really... Uh, uh, add like a lot of value to the product in itself, like how it looks, how it works. And they can also then also use these tools to do more business oriented activities, like you know, writing a mission, uh, you know, building a vision, or even do the financials, understand how the, the, the structure of, of the company will work. work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that leads perfectly into the next question, like what is your leadership philosophy? My leadership philosophy? Oh, well, that's a good question. I think it's, uh, <laughs> I think I let everyone talk. Uh, the other talk and I'll talk and then I just summarize what they said and I, and I make it look like it's my decision and everyone buys into it. <laughs> and so now I everybody think, will know about it. Exactly. I think, I think it's still in credit. Uh, that's how you do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think it's called, uh, it's called something like uh, uh, collaborative, but actually, yeah, collaborative and participative. These are the, the, the two things. But then uh, I will say there are some moments, like maybe 20% of the times, where I just switch to command and control. When there is like some crisis, like the three months I was mentioning before the the COVID situation, yeah, that was command and control. It's like, guy, no one has to say anything. It's a it's a dictature. It's like a regime. You do whatever I say. That's it. Otherwise, we don't go through that. And, uh, and and that's something interesting. How how do you know when to do the switch? Because you cannot be command and control all the time. All the time, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Absolutely no. It's actually only you can you can use it only. It's like when you you highlight a text, right? You can only highlight few words. If you highlight too much stuff, then it doesn't make any sense anymore. Good. So uh, so it's like yeah. I only use it like uh, in specific cases, like this year maybe only once, basically with with that situation. Uh, and I'm really nasty when I do that, and and people hate me, and and, and then I need to have like a few months to recover my image because then, <laughs> and also the relations with the, the developers and the designers because they, they hate me after well, that. That's also a job of the leader. Sometimes you have to be the hated person inside the company because you have yeah. to take hard decision uh, to make sure that the company and everybody survives and thrives afterwards. Yeah, that, that's me. I'm always the bad cop. I mean, the, my, my co-founder is the good cop. He's always smiley and nice. <laughs> and I'm the bad cop. So I'm actually, we also use that, 
in business when we do uh, deals or partnerships or some contracts. Uh, is the one kind of accommodating, I'm the one going straight frontal in the negotiation. And then uh, is the one that solves the, the negotiation by finding a good compromise, but always maybe a better deal for us, a lower price. So yeah, so I think- Do you find like, and do you find like this partnership, this, because it, you see it like in movies everywhere, the good cop and the bad cop, does it really work? Yes, you yes, actually, you almost have to have a bad cop and a good cop. Really, I mean, I cannot imagine any other because when you have a when you have a negotiation for a contract, a deal, an investment, anything you want, uh, but you need to have like that the third person that kind of put peace between the two parties, right? So yeah, you need to. Have, I think if you don't have a co-founder, bring in maybe one of your manager or maybe the guy that takes care of the growth and sales, or like a third person, even if it's a junior one that you know, is in the conversation, I can say the kind of the peace word towards the end so that you find a compromise. Otherwise, it's ah. just head, heads against heads, you know, <laughs> in the negotiation, and it's not good. So you also need a person to smooth everything over and make peace. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. Interesting, I like it. And if you want to know where I learned this, this is very interesting. Where? I learned, I learned this from uh, some mafia movies. Mafia movies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a third person that is the one that kind of managed to solve the situation and, and kind of going forward without any blood being like, you know, kind of uh, spread. Yeah, it's, if I'm thinking now about, yeah, yeah. that always happens yeah. like in uh, Somebody movies. that uh, keeps the peace. Yeah. <laughs> or tries to keep the peace. That's good. Yeah. Uh, no. Okay. Um, can you share with us the top three leadership tips that you have for aspiring new leaders? Leadership tips. Okay, so um, let me check. I think one is that um, it's a communicating, uh, over communicating. That's one. And um, I mean, over is like using uh, several means of communications uh, for several uh, type of people, uh, introvert, extrovert, uh, some people with a different uh, gender or culture. You need to accommodate your communication and adapt. It's almost like a dress that needs to be uh, kind of built on each person. Uh, so you need to be a good uh, dressmaker to actually have that type of communication relation with each people in your team. So and 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 over communicating, text, email, voice, visuals, everything. Uh, usually in a book, uh, a good author, a good writer, usually they write uh, one one concept seven times if they really want that that concept to go through. Um, now, when you speak, I, I do at least three times. That's why in a conversation, if I want really that, uh, there's a specific point I want to get through, I say it three times during a conversation, let's say that is like half an hour long. Um, that's the first one. The second okay. one is, is do the right thing. Uh, there is like so much crap in this world, there's no, no really point to do like not the right thing. There's, there, there's already so much like problems, like, you know, you name it in this world that you know at least in your small part try to do the right thing the thing that seems more rational the thing that is good for everyone the thing that is good for the commonwealth of everyone uh you know for your team first for society for a second so there's always that underlying thinking of of you know having a, 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 a karma and your karma to be good and, and the karma also spread towards your team towards your product eventually and towards society so do the right thing you know don't just play evil for like having like a 10 percent more revenues revenues are important because you need to of course make a business but also do the right thing do a kind of 
a, a good business model because even capitalism is being like now evolved into green capitalism. So there is all this ethical component that's coming inevitably in our life. And you, you can build a, a company with that. So in our company, yes. if something doesn't make sense, it's not right. We just don't do it. To, you know, I mean, it's funny about almost every, I'll say three, three to six months, I always kind of threat my, my co-founders to close the company because we are not doing the right thing. So they get scared. <laughs> like I was like, guys, I'd rather just close the company. So that's the second thing. The third one, um, that's about really taking calculated risks. And uh, I mean, you need to take risks, but they need to be really calculated. And that taps into strategy, right? Um, so strategy is something that I had to learn. And then I found myself actually that I'm good at it, but I had to learn. But then, uh, yeah, take like calculated risk that take in consideration uh, your, term, your, your team first. So put your team first and check you know, your decision, how they're going to affect your team, their family, their kids, because they are, they all like, they all have lives, lives, right? So yeah, do that, calculated risk. And, and then at some point, you know, take your responsibility because when you take them a step, you need to know that if you are the, the, the founder of the company, the leader of your company, you're going to be the last one left with, you know, with, with, with the problem in your hands, basically. Uh, so my, my, my leadership approach is, is also actually to be always supporting the team from the back, pushing them instead of just being front and say like, guys, follow me. Um, I mean, at least I try to do that. I don't know how, how good, how good uh, I am in that, but I try to actually support my team from the back uh, by taking calculated risk and try to protect them. And how, how are you pushing them forward? Uh, yeah, that's a good, uh, good question. Uh, <laughs> by, <laughs> by annoying them a lot. Like, like uh, you know, if someone that, you know, I'm just like, they're annoying, like really perseverant and persistent. Uh, and, and sometimes they just, just, just like, you know, leave me alone. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, I try like, in a, you know, um, in a very smooth way, but then after I try like to match them uh, with, with, with several uh, tips or, or hints, or that's how I try to support them from, from the back. And, and then and if, if I see that something, if there is something in their life bothering, I just like have a, we have one-to-one meetings like every week with everyone, um, you know. Because at the end of the day, the, the company need to come towards your life. It's not the opposite. So when they say work-life balance, I always say life, I always say life-work balance. So life comes first, and then the company comes around you and 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 accommodate your life. So you know, I always try to understand what's be, in the human side, what's behind the, the needs, and. If I can do it to the company, if I can make a small change that will help them, why not? Even if, you know, financially, if they need a little bit more money. One of our guys now that he just moved to Prague from Pilsen because he's young, he wanted to have a new experience. Straight away, I don't want ones like, look, you know, take a raise of salary and, you know, like 20% raise because, you know, before even him, him asking, you know, because I know he's going to ask and, and, you know, he's going to ask maybe in two months, yeah. but, you know, yeah. it makes sense. It makes sense. And I like the fact that you have each week you have one-to-ones with everybody in the company. That's important. Yeah, that's important to, I mean, it's important for the, 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 the mental uh, health of everyone. Uh, and, but it's also important for actually having people stick around a little bit more. So when, when I did this one with my previous company, I mean, the first one, I, never, I did it not many one-to-one and people were just churning, were just going away. And, and at the second company, I started having like people that stayed with us for like two, three years. So it was pretty good. Nice. And do you also encourage um, the people inside the company 
to also have like life first and work uh, second. Yes, 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 it. totally, totally. I mean, I was sit your works some strange hours, like six to eight a.m. And then he, he brings the kids to school, and then he works eleven to four p.m. Eleven a.m. to four p.m. And then he spend time with his kids, and then he works from ten ten p.m. to midnight. So I mean, you know, it's like everyone does that. You know, I play tennis, and then I, play, I work more at night. And, and also now. Um, we also do the what we call the mental fitness lab sessions. So we have our. Ooh, what's uh, that? It's uh, it's uh, we have a Rio. It's an amazing guy. He's uh, an ex Googler. He was at Google and now since like seven eight years he learned all the meditation techniques. He's a yogi, so he does actually yoga, meditation, and breathing techniques. So he's very expert in tech companies as well as meditation and all these techniques for for improving your, your mental health. So we have uh, every month, we have one session, everyone uh, in conference call, and we learn about these techniques. We do yoga all together, we do breathing techniques all together. And that brings the team uh, very, very close to each other. So we actually, we started like three months ago, we now bought like session for the next year. So it's, it's pretty good. Nice. A, a team. Well, uh, a nice company. A team. Yeah, I like it. A, yeah. yeah, actually, we are, we are recruiting. So if anyone wants to join, uh, welcome. It's remote, uh, pays well, and uh, you know, we are very hippie. We will sure. add uh, links. I just wanted to, to ask one more thing. Um, do you or your uh, team use uh, cookbooks? As in for, for, yeah, a cookbook is like a set of steps or recipes for what you have to do to get the, the things you need to do get done. Um, in like terms procedures. of product development procedures, I mean, yeah, kind of, I mean, yeah, we, in the, when we, when you, you know, when we do the product planning and we have our child with user stories and we write in the stories like acceptance criteria, the user story, we also write kind of the, the checklist of what you have to do to actually achieve uh, complete this task or this feature. Uh, so I think there is an element of cookbook of step-by-step -step, uh, how yeah. to do it. Because yeah, you mentioned before that you, you write a lot because you're yeah. visual and you, and you check. And I, I uh, wanted to know if you encouraged also your, uh, your team members to, to keep like a journal and write and, and do uh, retrospect and for, for the past and also for the future. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, as a team, we do it also respective. Uh, in each, I mean, Singular member, yeah, I kind of mention it and ask them, but some people just like it's a you know, with, with drawing, some people feel like a little bit ashamed or embarrassed. For them, it's like doing something very personal, and, and I don't know, it's like it's very funny, it's like something very, very private. And, and some people just are embarrassed to, to actually sketch something in public. So, when I try mm. to do like kind of uh, I know that why, feeling, I know yeah. why. <laughs> well, so, I, I learned say. this year, like. This year, no, I learned right. how to draw. They, they, in school, they had an assignment and they drew, and they had a teacher, tall, bigger person, very authoritative, who said, you cannot draw. You don't know how to draw. And they believe that, because when you're That's a kid, you true. believe stuff like that. That's true. It comes back from education. That's true. That's true. Yeah. We had, like, a bad arts teacher. I had, like, this. So, and I, and I, I picked up, like, a car doodling. Mm -hmm. uh, some guy had like a learning one hour how to doodle and I was surprised like I really learned in one hour how to do some yeah, basic doodling there but it looked really good <laughs> the exactly. cover the cover for the podcast yeah. oh wow that's cool nice <laughs> I, I don't know if it passes somebody with an eye for designing the X if it yeah. passes or not but but as long as, you know, everything that is original always win, you know, uh, you know uh, among other stuff that are kind of copied. So if it's original that you made it, 
it's a much more value and you can see it and it's much yeah, better because it holds the artist's <laughs> intent yes exactly exactly and that's something that is a problem with digital assets sometimes because you cannot see the artist intent you cannot see many more details or, or grain that you can see in the actual notebook on the actual uh, pen so yeah yes it's important and gabriele and actually one last writing thing. yeah you know you know i don't know if you guys know john maeda john maeda is actually the inventor yeah. of the generative art he's like he was a uh, head of mit uh, media lab uh, he does a lot of uh, coding invent a lot of new design coding techniques actually he, the way he code is like with a pen and paper he actually does pseudo code with a pen and paper and then he translates it in code everything and yes. actually he does a lot of coding right so yeah even the best of the best use this technique i i have to say i also use it and it, well, for example if i want to learn a new language coding language or, or even like a human language <laughs> from yeah. pen and paper it's it's the fastest way you just start writing it and expressing your thoughts in it and uh, it's way faster than you if you're just trying to assimilate looking at books and reading them yeah it's the fastest Great. way to do it i don't know if it's muscle memory or not it just works. I don't care. Yeah, it the works. science behind it, I don't know it, but it works. And that's what I keep about exactly. <laughs> Since we're talking about books, what is the book that had the most profound impact on you? Uh, I mean, there are so many books. I mean, there are, like, I would say, a couple of them. One is uh, uh, fi uh, Fictions from Borges. Uh, it's one of my favorite authors. Uh, it's an Argentinian author, uh, Luis Borges, and uh, I love him. Uh, and this one brings, uh, you know, talks about a lot of different words uh, that are based on several conceptions of societies and all like imaginary, very fan fantasy words. And this was one. The second one is very pragmatic. It's called Venture Deals. Uh, it's a very famous book uh, in the fundraising world. As a funder, as a, someone that's building a company, you have to know Venture Deals. They also now have a, a, an online course that is free uh, i think it's uh, it's one of these uh, online courses. i mean you can find it's like venture deals uh, i remember the name of the car the guy's called bread something anyway and the venture deal basically tells you each single step of the fundraise all the legal documents what you have to do in details and explains you very well all the single clauses like what's like a dra uh, drag along means what's the valuation what's liquidation what's like preferred shares all these things in details so basically most of the time I found myself knowing more than the average lawyers uh, in the UK and London cool. because, because the, the, especially in Europe, we don't have that culture and the best practices that have been built, you know, in the last 20 years, like, you know, like you can find in Silicon Valley. In Silicon Valley, you know, some stuff are pretty common. Everyone knows about those. Even like, you know, how much shares you need to give to a mentor, how much shares to an advisor, how much, you know, how big the, your stock option pool should be. But in Europe, really, no one knows about it. And that's because the main uh, hubs uh, for startups is just probably London, Paris, Berlin, and now a little bit Lisbon, right? But London is still yes. like, the strongest one. Uh, so by, by reading this book that is written by Americans, so some stuff are American in terms of uh, legislation, but you can really understand uh, what to do. For example, if you go to a low, low, low company in London, they still ask you for a thousand pounds to just write a, a, a standard shelter agreement. And the way they will do it, they will have like, they will, they will come up with like 20, 30 a pages. Template. No, no, not even. That's the point. They don't believe templates. And that's fine because it's a low company. So we expect a customized service. But they will end up with like 20, 30 pages of stuff that's impossible to read. If you go to an American lawyer, it's like three pages. And, and now in the UK, there is uh, this comment that I always like, I love them. It's 
called the uh, Seed Legals, and uh, I'm also the founder, and we have been using them for the last uh, for the last two rounds. And actually, they brought kind of American standards in terms of fundraising to to Europe. And and it's so simple. You go there, you know, click 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 click. You generate documents. Nice. Everyone is transparent of the cap table of where they stand. You can sign digitally. So it's a peace of mind. But actually, when I go and read each piece, I know them very well because I read this book and also took this class. So as a founder, you need to know all these things. Otherwise, VC, they screw you up. So, and also angels. So you need to know <laughs> all the differences, all the nitty gritty of this legal term because you need to protect your shares and your team shares. So Venture Deal, it's a very good book. It's, it's been like- a And that's a great share. Thing. It's an awesome yeah. share. And for the people listening who might have missed it, um, Gabriele just mentioned that uh, he went to um, like the first company, the first uh, attorneys in London and then found a new company. The purpose is that he writes his own contract. He doesn't let the VC write the contract. He writes the contract and they agree upon it. And I'm guessing that's very important that you write, you're the one that writes the contract. Actually, yeah, in this fundraise, we were the one proposing directly after the second meeting already, term sheet, a short agreement, this is it. And they, they could come back, maybe we change one clause, but not like, you know, negotiating everything. So it's very good if you're proactive in that. Especially with, with VCs, yes, they may get, a bit upset probably, but at least you show that you have an idea of, you know, how everything works and they cannot like really put anything funny inside it. But also with angels, they love it because, you know, they, sometimes they don't have a clue. If they're investing a small ticket for <laughs> 50K, uh, you know, they, 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 even for them writing a term sheet and offering to you, like it's a bit uh, too much work. So it's, it's better if you just offer them that option. Yeah. yeah. And plus, uh, those sounds like, 50k if they have to get a lawyer and do the documents they have get to invest like two three k in that and say like yeah. I, I would be better off investing it in the company so i get more shares exactly yeah. <laughs> true oh and gabriele if people want to find out more about you where should they go they should go on coin rule our company coin rule coinrule.io it's the website uh, we do automated trading for cryptocurrencies so if you are someone that is interested in buying bitcoin ethereum and you use one of the main platforms you buy there and then after a while you start understanding that manual trading takes so much time so what you do you start adding an automation machine on top of that and so you can say if bitcoin goes down two percent buy this other coin at this price given this condition. It's very simple to use. You can, in a few seconds, you can create an automated strategy. And then when you press play, the strategy goes on the market and trades on your behalf. And, and basically you can sleep well because you can protect your funds or you can also try to uh, generate more money from, this, from the money that you already invest in your crypto. Uh, so if you go on the website, coinrule.io, uh, that's where you can find my contact. It's gab at coinrule.io, that's my email address. And also, uh, we are also launching the crowdfunding campaign. Uh, on Cedars, uh, so actually it's live in two weeks uh, in October in 2020. Cool. And uh, so, if you're interested, if you like the company, you can also uh, invest in actual in the actual shares. That sounds really good. And we're going to put links in the show notes. And highly recommend people, especially if you like trading, check out Coin Rule. And you've heard like they have happy employees because uh, the leadership <laughs> takes care of them. So the product is also good. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Thank you very much. You're thinking about investing, do it uh, this year before you read about it in the papers. Because once you read it in Forbes, it's too late. You know what happened last year, actually? It was funny because my friend told me when when the taxi driver started talking about Bitcoin, sell it. And actually, two years ago, there was a huge crash after the bubble. 
And literally, I, had, I went in a Uber in London. The actual taxi driver told me after one week, the market crashed. <laughs> <laughs> See, taxi drivers, they're the exactly. secret. Exactly. <laughs> they're the ones listen, that hear listen, the most conversation. Yeah, listen to your taxi driver. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Gabriel, for coming on the show. It's thank been you. a true pleasure. Thank, thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye bye. That was today's episode. Tune in daily. Rate, like, subscribe, and share, please. Oh, you can find further info and materials in the show notes on techyleadership.com, including links to the guest book recommendations.